Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here in New York City at the Strata Conference, and I'm seated with Justin Norman. Justin is the Director of Research and Data Science Services at CloudEver Fast Forward Labs. Justin, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Awesome. Uh, so, Justin, you started your career in data as an officer with the U.S. Marine Corps. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So I actually got a chance to study computer science and a focus on mathematical optimization at the Naval Academy. Um, so naturally, when I uh, made the decision to join the Marine Corps, um, I was asked to go into a technical role um, pretty much straight off the bat, which was just fine by me. Um, but over the course of about seven years, I got a chance to both locally and also overseas participate in a lot of large-scale network enterprises, which had massive data challenges, um, not the least of which were that um, there at times were over 30,000 connected devices under management. Um, and just understanding what traffic flows looked like, which were normal, what traffic looks like that were anomalous, and being able to react dynamically to that um, was a large portion of my job. So machine learning was embedded, uh, quite frankly, in the, in the sort of uh, soul of what we were doing. But at the time, we didn't really have terminology for data science and machine learning. We just sort of did what we needed to do. Um, but naturally, that, that helped me to sort of progress into industry um, as the field emerged a bit farther later in, the, uh, in my lifetime. You went on to found a startup in machine learning, is that right? I did. So I worked with a few people that I knew quite well to try to work on the problem of business predictive analytics within sports. And so we weren't so focused on sort of the saber metrics that you see from the sort of traditional sports analytics, but we're a lot more interested in trying to find ways to solve some of the you know, corporate challenges that we saw in a lot of other industries but uh, applying them to industries which really didn't have that kind of, of uh, background and skill set and, and helping them to accelerate from a financial perspective. So a lot of our focus was actually in the beautiful game, in, in football, um, but the, the right football. <laughs> um, and, and, and we did a lot of work in Central and South America to help some of those smaller clubs actually be able to take advantage of um, the business value of their players. For example, transferring uh, or trading a player that had a higher social media impact than perhaps uh, another player that was equally skilled to try to impact you know, things like ticket sales and retention of season ticket holders, things okay. like that. Uh, interesting. I did a, an interview with uh, a guy named Noah Gift that um, was doing some, real, some very similar things in terms of looking at how to score player social media mm -hmm. impact and the ultimate impact on uh, the, the game. Uh, so you went on to, among other things, do data science at Cisco right. and uh, now at CloudOver Fast Forward Labs. Tell us a little bit about your role and your focus uh, at CFFL. Great. Yeah. So as, uh, as people may or may not be aware, we're actually exactly at one year of the acquisition of Fast Forward Labs at CloudOver. So um, in a nutshell, my role is to, to take Fast Forward Labs kind of from where it is, which is, is actually very well integrated um, and, and quite successful um, with its existing clients and some uh, additional cloud clients and really scale that globally. And I mean that from not just a, like a physical standpoint. So yes, we want to expand to EMEA and into Asia, um, but actually also from a data perspective. So can we take the research that we've done, the products that we've developed, and start to do those uh, at scale and the enterprise and be really um, known as not just 
leaders in the research field, but leaders in how to apply that research across um, both corporate, organizational, governmental ent entities. Um, and, you know, that is from a technical perspective a challenge, but also from a human uh, and strategic perspective a challenge, which is why I think Flyasport Labs is, is really uniquely positioned. Um, because, as you know, our, our research not just doesn't just focus on the technical and technique aspect of things, though we have quite a bit of research in that area, but also in how to layer the you know, people and process and skills conversations into the application of the te that technology so that you get the outcome uh, when you actually expect to have it. Uh, and so for those that don't know, the research that you're referring to uh, is a series of reports. Um, can you talk a little bit about the some of the topics that you've covered in the reports just as context? Sure. So the best way I think to talk about the reports is to start with a process that we go through to actually uh, decide what we're going to do. Um, and, and I think it's really powerful. Uh, so the entire team gets together um, and really calls out, I'd say, with the intent to found, to found some bad ideas um, of, you know, types of topics that might be relevant within the next, you know, 12 to, you know, to 24 months um, within machine learning. And, and the intent is that we're going to look at topics that are not just, you know, papers or, or research that is out there in, in, in scholarly journals, but actually something that is starting to be applied in industry, or, or maybe we have the ability to, to bring that last step. Um, and so topics in the past, like natural language generation, um, semantic recommendations, image analysis with deep learning, um, and then most recently multitask learning have uh, you know, sort of become of the topic that has gone through, that we've narrowed down in that process and really have felt that is most relevant to um, the widest group of, of consumers um, that exists within industry, academia, um, and beyond. So we've actually just launched a report, as, as uh, I just referred to, called Multitask Learning, which focuses on actually executing multiple machine learning tasks at the same time. And so we're really excited about that. And, and there's actually a number of people this week at Strata who are going to be speaking about that in greater depth. And, and so very excited to, to hear what they have to say about that. Um, but we're not stopping and actually have two more reports in the queue. And one of them, we actually know the research, what the research is going to be focused on, and that's on federated learning as well. So um, we're, we're uh, really excited to be able to share this because we think that now we're becoming influenced not just by the community that we had um, through Fast Forward Labs, which was extensive, but also because we're at Cloudera, we now have a, a focus around, along the enterprise with a much, much larger scale that's helping us to, to understand what's relevant to that community as well. And, and that definitely has directly influenced what we've been able to, uh, to, to perform in the research space as well. Mm. Um, on that multitask learning paper, I haven't had a chance to take a look at that one, but around the time it was being, uh, that initiative was being kicked off, someone at CFFL reached out to me to see if I knew anyone who was working in that space. And I had recently done an interview with uh, Ryan Poplin at Google. I'm pretty sure that's who it was, um, who had made an interesting comment that they were looking at these retinal fundus images and uh, using those to determine a variety of uh, demographic information about the people who the images came from. And they noticed that when they uh, asked their model to do to determine a single thing uh, and, and compare the performance relative to asking the model to do multiple things, uh, the model performed better when it had multiple things to do. And uh, his theory was that that, um, that that kind of forced the model to generalize better. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so I kind of made the connection. I hope that connection is a good connection. Useful, uh, That's a very good connection. And I think you'll see that in the, in the report, even that we recreated results, not on that specific use case, but on other use cases that was very similar. And in some, in some areas, it's, it's very well explainable to your point why that happens. And in some areas it's, it's not. And I think that's one of the, the most powerful parts of the research component of what that report, report covers. Um, so you, you certainly, um, you know, can recreate that experience where you do have model performance that's a bit better on you know, one or multiple, or excuse me, uh, multiple or, or even, um, you know, three or four or even more um, learning tasks at the same time. But the type of data is, is highly relevant to whether or not you're going to see that performance. And that's mm -hmm. one of the things that we spend a lot of time talking about. And so is, is the, what's the kind of core thesis of that, of the, that paper? Uh, well, so that for, uh, like I said, for certain types of data um, sets and, and for certain learning tasks, you should definitely do it. <laughs> uh, <Okay. laughs> so it is the core thesis. But I think the, the most important part is that it, it is possible to actually execute these multiple learning tasks um, you know, and execute them at scale, utilizing um, some of the more uh, now commoditizable um, learning functions. So things like uh, deep learning models are, are highly relevant to this as well. So the, the focus is on, on really making sure that people understand which techniques exist um, and then when to apply them. And are there a specific set of techniques for multitask learning or is it just the same stuff but with multiple objectives? There but a little bit of both. Okay. Um, so there are definitely certain sets of techniques, but it depends on the objective. Can you give me an overview of the specific types of techniques? That what you would need Frederica for. Okay. That was the, the report that recently came out. Um, going forward, you are looking at, uh, is, you mentioned that the next one is going to be on federated learning. What's That's right. The, what's the thinking around that? So one of the things that um, was always a theme at Fast Forward Labs, and I think, again, back to my earlier point, is something that's coming you know, front of mind because of the types of customers that we've been working with at Cloudera, is the idea of, of really trying to uh, execute and scale machine learning at the edge. So by the edge, I mean um, at devices that are, are you know, the last device before a human or last device before a sensor um, you know, executes uh, its function to read data from an environment. Um, and there's a, a number of reasons to want to do machine learning at the edge. But I think one of the biggest ones is um, the if the device, and now they do, have enough computational power to execute that, you get returns and results back that you can you know, influence outcomes with directly without having to report back to some kind of central model um, or some kind of central computing uh, store. So um, this is most relevant in IoT applications. I, I think um, you you can uh, even think of it as a human with your cell phone. Um, there's obviously multiple machine learning models that are powering very important functions on your phone. Um, but one of the challenges that comes into play right away with that um, is that ultimately there's a lot of people who want to have the power of machine learning and AI enabled capabilities, but without necessarily exposing the underlying data structure. Um, and the data that, uh, that data structure that might be influenced by uh, a person's personal choices, um, by, uh, for example, in a commercial application, competitor IP uh, applications that, that don't want to be shared with the industry. But you still want the benefit of being able to train and to share, uh, for example, parameters um, or hyperparameters uh, that uh, settings that are relevant across the scope of problems without necessarily exposing how you got there. Mm -hmm. And so federated learning is, is, a, is a set of techniques or an approach um, to be able to do just that, um, where you are potentially have a, a centralized model or a model that serves as a baseline. Um, for one or multiple devices that are deployed over multiple workflows, but you still get a chance to benefit from that without exposing each one of the individual data um, 
underlying data structures that are there. And, and that's very important from an ethical perspective, very important from a commercial perspective. Um, and also it does have a performance impact, a positive performance impact. Um, um, as you might know, from starting from you're essentially starting from um, you know a little bit farther down the race instead of at that starting line. Mm. Um, so, is the the issue that you're kind of framing around um, not wanting to disclose uh, model parameters is 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 the issue that you're looking to address? The idea that if you push a model out to the edge, you're exposing you know, that model, the, the parameters of, of that model are IP and you're exposing that IP? Kind of the other it... way around. It's okay. the data we don't want to expose. Okay. So, for example, um, if you're using a phone, um, the types of uh, text messages or images that you have on your phone are very private. You don't right. want that to be shared. But being able to do natural language processing or, or, or analysis of your text messages in order um, to respond better, provide uh, applications on top of that is something, of course, you want to have happen. Right. So if you are a provider of, of software, of mobile software, you want to be able to train models on the widest set of information you possibly can. But you may not have the benefit of reading everybody's text messages, nor should you. Mm -hmm. So is there a way that, um, you know, potentially that you can get the benefit of a more precise model that fits better to a larger set of data, generalizes to a larger set of data um, without actually having access to that data? And so being able to perform these multiple learning functions over time um, and a, a you know, very broad set of, of workers or work or workflows that are existing in near real time and then giving that information back the, the you know potential parameter settings of a model um, or the or the sort of things that shape a fit to to you know to have a model be more generalizable without underlying without exposing the underlying data is what we're looking for and so the idea is that I'm I've got access to some set of data at the edge. I don't want to trans, uh, send all of that data back to some central location, right. either for privacy reasons, bandwidth reasons, all whatever, all of the above. Mm -hmm. uh, so what can I do on the edge to presumably, uh, you know, we talk a lot about the edge for inference, but what we're talking about here is to train or partially train on the edge and then um, use that to, it sounds like the, the idea of Federated is use that to enhance a centralized model that can maybe even be like distributed or some go. aspect of that model or what that models learn distribute out to the other edge devices. There you go. Perfect. How do, how do you do that? <laughs> well, I mean, you'll have to wait for the report. Um, but but the, the, the long and short of it is um, it's it's now possible um, from a computational perspective to execute these multiple workers. Um, you know, when you're actually you're looking at thinking about a model um, that's being uh, deployed anywhere, it's being done by some you know automation workflow, just just like any other software engineering mm -hmm. um, component. And so now that we can do this, um, not just like with one or two on a laptop, but with you know a thousand, five thousand, a hundred thousand. Um, and, and actually have uh, not just a bit like we don't have bandwidth constraints, but also not computational constraints. Mm -hmm. um, there, uh, that's a large part of, of what we'll be exposing as hey, how to actually execute this, um, and then what are some of the constraints of that from you know from a technology perspective. That's one aspect of it, and then from um, you know from a sharing of of model parameter information or model fit uh, fit information, you know how actually to. Um, bring that back to a centralized location to average and generalize that across um, the full scheme so that it's useful to be, to your point, distributed back into that matrix of, of learners is also what we're focused on. So there are a couple of techniques that we've that we've developed and a few that we've adopted and, and written about that you'll hear about very soon. Hmm. In the past, my 
uh, impression of the, the the reports has been that the focus is on kind of going out, exploring what's out there in important areas, and you know, writing about those. Mm-hmm. Like one of my favorites is was the uh, the natural language summarization sure. one, right? Um, and you know, it did kind of a survey of you know, all the different techniques that have been used to mm-hmm. do summarization, LDA, a yeah. bunch of other things. Um, it sounds like here you're starting to tiptoe into developing some technology or algorithms. Yeah, and I think that happened largely because we recognize that this is a, a real, really important need um, for industry and, and for government. But uh, the techniques that we did research on weren't as mature uh, as they might have okay. been for other areas of research that we've explored. So if they were out there, we'd certainly tell you um, that these are the ones you should use. And I think we've taken a good survey of what we 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 found um, for multi excuse me for uh, federated learning. But this time around, uh, it became necessary for us to bridge the gap a little bit. Uh, and so, of course, the team has that capability and is more than happy to do that when we think it's relevant. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a lot of ways, that is. Um it kind of pokes at the the thesis of the research, which is I've always interpreted as, you know, this is stuff that's like right at the edge and Hey, this cool thing happened someplace, which kind of flipped it and people don't really know yet. Right. Um, I'm trying to remember what the, what the thing was in the summarization paper, but there was, there was some new, I think it was, uh, it was word vectors, mm-hmm. yeah, right? So sure. there was a bunch of LDA stuff and, and uh, language modeling mm-hmm. that, you know, people were using for this and it was, it kind of worked a little bit, you know, but it wasn't great, but Hey, word vectors came around and now we can really do sure. interesting summarization stuff. The thesis was, Hey, we're, you know, we're kind of scanning the, the world looking for, you know, these opportunities where external change has enabled some new way of um, some new capability. You know, here you're kind of more being that external change. Yeah, it's a pretty it strikes me as a pretty significant shift. It, it is a significant shift. And I think it goes back to you know how we started the podcast, which is, um, you know, Clydera gives us a platform now to have, uh, I think, a perspective on what's happening in industry um, from the top layer, right? Mm-hmm. So I think one of the things that's very powerful that we've maintained about Fast Forward Lab is that we're talking to academia, we're talking to startups, we're talking to um, you know organizations which are focused on machine learning and AI. Um, and that's a particularly powerful perspective that we've always had, but we didn't have as much exposure to um, the you know industry players, uh, the, the people who are doing um, machine learning and, and AI um, at scale on the edge in the petabyte scale, right? So uh, I think what we're finding now is like, we're being um, asked by that community to solve a different set of problems. And those problems may not have been commoditized yet. So uh, we have the ability to, to connect what they're looking at strategically and from a, a, a business or, or, a, or a mission relevance perspective, and then apply uh, that cutting edge research, which was, was always sort of there um, with a layer of, um, you know, of, of interface so to use a better, to use a word. So I think that's what, what, what's occurring as a result of that one year being at the, at the company. Okay. Okay. Interesting. And now this whole area of devices, uh, and, uh, the edge is not new to you. No. Um, <laughs> we didn't talk about it in your background, but yeah. you spent some time at Fitbit. I did. How, how has that informed your thinking about this whole space? Uh, it, it definitely has been shaped uh, my, my thinking about this space and made it quite frankly top of mind for me. Anytime that I, I recommend building uh, a, you know, a model factory, an AI a system, 
And, and to just get a little bit deeper about that, at, at companies that have uh, you know an edge device that's being delivered to a consumer or you know is being used to gather information from the environment like a sensor, um, you end up having this really poignant real-time challenge. And so you, you need to and you want to do machine learning right at that device or near that device um, because it's important to be able to serve back either to your human or to, uh, or to the environment the results of a model or the score of a model in, in some um, very, uh, some very poignant way. And, you know, the example that you get on a, a device like a, a fitness tracker is that a person might go through some fitness activity and want to see, you know, projections of where they might be, um, had certain variables changed, had they run faster, um, you know, what their heart rate might be, um, if they were to continue the next set of their exercise. Um, and uh, for example, you know, something very famously, you know, the number of steps that you're, you're, you're doing, um, that's not a static number for any human being and their performance upwards or downwards on that, you know, depends on a variety of factors, a variety of features um, to use that the machine learning language. So uh, of course you want to be able to provide that back as quickly as possible. Um, and you know, the latency incurred by going back to a um, more robust offline data store sometimes is just not is just not performant enough to provide that to provide that and so you end up um, wanting to do this this sort of um, challenging activity which is to to do you know training of a model and batch scoring of a model um, within your data store where all the data actually lives on a larger on a larger platform like for example Hadoop mm -hmm. um, and, <laughs> and and you um, want to be able to somehow take the results of that trained model and put it somewhere that's much closer um, to the user itself, which is probably connected to, near to some connective device at the edge. Um, and it actually means that you need a couple of different environments to be able to um, to be able to do a scoring of of machine learning models or AI models. Um, and then your production environment doesn't become um, something that's running, you know, within a twenty four hours of latency, but something that may be running um, several times a minute or even a second. Um, when you say a couple of different environments, what do you mean? I mean, I mean uh, deployment environments for machine learning models. So, for example, uh, historically, deployment might look something like um, I have a, a, a machine learning model that's written in Python, and I'm going to use a cron job or something like that to schedule a run of the model. Um, it'll just uh, pull a representative sample from uh, you know from some interface layer on top of Hadoop. And then I'll return the results of that and dump it in a table somewhere else, also in Hadoop. And then okay. people can query that with um, whatever they want. You know, say SQL, right? So that's a, that's a that's mm -hmm. a, a a deployment workflow. And then if you want, uh, from an application perspective, to return results, um, you could put some kind of RESTful API layer on top of that, and then you uh, listen to that endpoint or hit that endpoint whenever you you have a request. That's that's an idea. Mm -hmm. um, not super performant, right? Yeah. Um, so imagine if I was a you know a cell phone or a fitness tracker, and there were seventeen million of me, right. <laughs> and I wanted to do that that um, that same function. I was querying that, that API directly from there. It, it's pretty challenging, right? So you actually end up needing a, a different environment, actually a completely different software engineering workflow to deliver that kind of performance. But you still want access to the underlying data because it's still sitting in Hadoop, and that's how you train. Right, so this is um, you know sort of uh, an extension of, of the problem that we were talking about before, where you actually do um, you know want to have access to the data, um, and so having a separate environment that's closer to the um, closer to the consumer, whether that be a device or a, pure, or a person, allows you to actually do some pre-processing and treat pre-training of features actually at the edge or near the edge. 
And so for that you know, common set of information or, or features that are going to power these models, you end up wanting to, to, you know, to do that pre-processing almost as the data is streamed itself, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then allow the model that's sitting on that device to pull from that source of data where it needs to. Um, and then return results much more quickly. So that's one of the things that I learned while working at a, at a, a device company um, is that sometimes the machine learning challenges are not necessarily from a technique or algorithm perspective, but actually how you apply it um, and how you apply it to get the outcome that you're looking for from, um, you know, from a consumer perspective um, in, in sometimes near real time or sub-second time. Now, it sounds like when you describe this architecture, it's and the different environments you know we've, we've talked about kind of the central capability we've talked about the edge but it almost sounds like you're laying out a hierarchical environment where you've got you know maybe you've got regions and something that's you know immediately behind the edge like this is talked about often in an iot environment sure. you've got your edge devices and then you've got your your plant device right. that's kind of a you know, it, it's, I don't think, it, I don't know that it's clear what the exact function of that is today. It's kind of doing some training and <laughs> intermediate model development, or at least that's the, um, people aspire to that. Sure. Um, today it's more doing data collection that's and right. then centralizing the data transfer to, you know, some mothership or some kind of intermediate right. mothership. How do you see all that evolving? Yeah. So what I, I think is starting to happen is because there's a much clearer definition of what actually you're going to need um, from, especially for commoditized models. So if we're talking about like ensemble models, um, like random forest or XG boost, we know, you know, we're very, very good at understanding what these models are going to need from an input layer perspective to be successful. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, when you begin to pre-process or pre-train features or pre-train data um, and, and put that closer to the edge, the intermediary that you're talking about actually can be responsible for promoting um, these feature sets um, and, and you know accomplishing this this migration of data um, with the very precise um, um, scale as opposed to just dumping or translating everything when we when we think we might need it and, and I think that's where ML, ML ops or AI ops is actually going to, to start to take a, a bigger role and um, you know really uh, even applying machine learning to you know the, the workflow itself and what ne what necessarily needs to be ac accomplished during that phase. Um, and you start to see the, you know, technologies like Airflow and Jenkins, um, you know, be the control layer for it. But underlying it, um, there's actually a machine, a machine learning functions that are powering what we translate um, into the, you know, the online uh, feature, feature store, which I think is, is something that's really exciting. Hmm. Now, Airflow is uh, kind of a data workflow uh, open source project developed by Airbnb. Airbnb, I, I think the original developer came from Facebook and then worked at Airbnb. Okay. But, um, but yeah, so Airflow is an example of, of what I, I'd call an AI DevOps or an AI ops tool. Um, it it's definitely does scheduling and, and, and workflow management just like any other, um, any other tool like in that category would do. But I think what makes it specific is that it's really tuned for the types of, tech, of types of te techniques that you'll need to perform in a machine learning workflow specifically. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that category of, of, you know, of tools is starting to become um, not just needed, but also um, appear in multiple, you know, software um, options, which shows that it's validated in the market. Mm -hmm. and Airflow is an open source approach to it, but there are certainly a lot of others who are, are taking a, a more commercial approach to it. And I think it's going to be necessary. And as a, a lot of these uh, companies and, you know, projects scale. Mm -hmm. And you've mentioned Jenkins, which, uh, you know, has been around forever, yeah. kind of in the Java community for doing sure. builds and stuff right. like that. How does that fit into this whole 
Well, I think we're, so now we're, we're like getting into the idea of how we're going to, or what, what is a model or what is a deployed model? Right? Yeah. And so, uh, you know, a deployed model, as we mentioned before, could be um, simply a, uh, a table somewhere that we've, we've scored, or we've used a function to score, um, you know, some fitted, some model fit to score data, uh, the results of data and put it into a table that could be, you know, what we consider deployed. But I think more and more we're starting to see deployed mean uh, it is the model, the model architecture itself, mm -hmm. um, and the ability to query that, that model architecture for the result that we're looking for um, in some kind of performant or way that we can fit into an SLA. I think that's what we're starting to see. And so when containerization um, and, and microservices you know, are layered together to, to try to produce this result holistically. So like, you know, mm. a model, you know, becomes a, the container itself um, mm -hmm. and, and the services that that it takes to be able to interface with it. Um, tools like that, you know, automation and workflow management tools become critical because uh, when you're actually interfacing with a model, um, you actually might be spinning the whole uh, workflow of, of, a, of, a, of a machine, um, the data uh, workflow that the machine needs to interact with, and then performing the scoring and then actually returning that result all at once. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's no longer about just having the, the skill set to be able to um, produce a, a, a nicely fitted model uh, against some set of data. It's actually being able to, put, to, put, to return that result um, in the way that it needs to be consumed um, either through, by an API or directly to an application. Mm -hmm. And so now we're, now we're in this space where we're, we're thinking about things a bit more holistically and we have to. Maybe going back a little bit to the to this kind of federated model, federated idea, mm -hmm. I'm just kind of in the back of my head thinking through like how this might work. And at, you know, one thought is at a low level, um, you know, people are doing things around distributed training and that's all centered or frequently centered around this idea of like exchanging gradient updates yeah. from one machine to uh, another or, um, you know, having something that's tracking all of these gradient updates that uh, the, dis the distributed workers involved in training can access. Mm -hmm. Like, is that involved in, is that part of what we're talking about or are we talking about, you know, when you talk about federated uh, training and federated ML, is it something at a higher level? Well, so I think it's certainly a component of what we're talking about, but I, I think we have to be really careful there not to, not to slip into the space of, um, of training the model of leaking essentially mm -hmm. <laughs> across. And that's exactly what we don't want to accomplish with federated. Um, so I, I think the and, and elaborate on what you mean by that. So uh, the the idea of, of you know even though um, individual uh, workers or individual models that are that are being deployed by workers don't have access directly to other to other data stores, um, the fact that they could learn the underlying patterns or structures and perhaps infer what's there, mm -hmm. um, we, we really have to be careful about that. And so the idea of a, a federated um, sort of abstracts I think a little bit more. Um, you know, how to accomplish that, um, though we're sharing, um, you know, um, not just gradient information, but really a larger set of parameters um, that are, that are, you know, available depending on the type of model. And actually, because it's a, a, it's much more oriented around the techniques, the specific algorithms that we're using underneath that shouldn't matter as much, but rather, you know, it, it is the mechanism for which these distributed workers are able to share um, to a centralized repository, and then that centralized repository performs better um, you know, than in each individual one could do that we're really focused mm -hmm. on. Uh, so then it sounds like it is, it is operating at a higher level yes. and the, the goal is less about, um, you know, sharing these gradient updates or whatever right. is a low level kind of information sharing sure. for the modeling right. question to allow this, a distributed model to converge and more like training a model 
individually at different places and sending key information about that model, uh, sharing key information about that model to make everyone's models better. Right. Um, and so, uh, again, the, the sort of central idea, uh, if you were asked to summarize that, would be that, you know, if you have, you know, the ability to take advantage of these techniques, which might be, you know, ultimately computationally expensive um, mm-hmm. to, to do across such a large uh, set of, of independent workers, um, you would achieve an outcome which would be impossible um, without uh, that centralized sharing of information, without that federated sharing of information. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the other thing that this uh, makes me think a little bit about is um, differential privacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that something that you've looked at previously in other roles or that you are looking at in the context of um, of this federated learning? Project? Yeah, definitely. I think it's going to we're going to definitely try to write about that. Um, but the research is ongoing, so I, I wouldn't be able to tell you what we've uncovered yet because we're literally looking at some of these things right now. OK. You talked a little bit about online versus offline mm-hmm. learning. Often when the whole online learning comes up, it comes up in the context of Spark and yeah. streaming and, and pipelines. Where, how do you see that fitting into this? Yeah. So when I was describing the scenario earlier where, um, you know, where you might want to uh, respond uh, to uh you know, to an activity or something that has occurred, um, like for example, with a fitness tracker, um, those those exchanges of data are happening with real time streams. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't think it's a secret to anyone that you know that that Spark streaming and and really, um, you know, things like Kafka, um, you know, um, um, interfaces between these devices are and are, are a key component of how this works. Um, so what I would say is that's the piping behind uh, behind this processes that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, what makes it a little bit more challenging is um, the sort of um, potentially asynchronous nature uh, of how data works in that area. And this is back to the, the sort of Cisco days mm-hmm. um, um, and the, you know, for lack of a better term, the UDP-ness of it, um, mm-hmm. where you may receive some or all of the data. Some of it um, may be out of order probably will be. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, you still have to find a way to coherently respond to that. Um, And I think that component of it becomes a data engineering challenge, which is at the edge, uh, combined with a machine learning challenge, which is at the edge, combined with a software engineering challenge that's at the edge. And so we have to solve all these problems very, very quickly. Um, And so what I've seen in industry so far as I've worked on it is that everyone's architecting slightly different workflows uh, around this. And it's probably time that um, we and others begin to, to standardize that a bit um, to make it more accessible for the community. Mm-hmm. And so we're specifically talking about workflows. Are, are you talking about the whole the federated uh, concept specifically or we're not? We're talking about well, you, kind of the workflows right. for managing these edge right. devices and doing right. software engineering for edge devices yeah. and yeah um, i mean you asked about the about you know how streaming streaming, play streaming. Into, plays into it and, and i think it like i said before it's the piping that regardless of what application you're trying whether it's a federated learning mechanism or simply you're just trying to deliver online online um, services machine learning services it, you're going to have to interact with that environment uh, and the ecosystem right now is, is is pretty complex and i think we've got to do some work to you know to at least abstract some of it so that we're much more focused on solving the problem than dealing with engineering workflows which is where we currently are. And, and how close do you think we are to being able to do that? It, it, we've advanced engineering practices, yeah. you know, with DevOps, for example, mm-hmm. uh, significantly over the past uh, few years. And we've got a growing base of experience with mobile. Mm-hmm. Um, although 
for you know at the from the device perspective the rate of change mm-hmm. of you know what's happening on the device tends to be a lot slower than sure. what we'd want in a kind of an IoT yeah. enterprise more agile environment um, but with you know with those as kind of background you know then we've got these two you know IoT which is changing quickly and we're just kind of wrapping our heads around yeah. and trying to figure out and then to layer onto that the machine learning and AI sure. stuff like how do you think we as an industry like put together you, you mentioned standards it, yeah. it seems like we're so far from standards you know just a way that works that consistently to manage all of this yeah stuff. it's a hard problem i'm, I'm not going to trivialize <laughs> the problem. i don't think that is a you know that would be a smart thing to do but i will say that it might be useful for us to 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 maybe go a little bit away from segregating ourselves by community um there are really well very well understood very powerful practices and networks um, that have existed for years that might be really helpful for us in some of these challenges. They've been dealing with real-time streaming since the beginning of computers uh, computers sharing information with each other, right? Uh, I mean, I spent a lot of time at Cisco, and, and let me tell you, there's there's some people there who you know have gotten down to the algorithm level and Dijkstra Shorter's path and can tell you exactly how messages respond to that you know, from device to device when you're talking about the context of a router. Mm-hmm. And those standards exist. They're actually really, well, they're very well documented. They're published, they're public. Um, so I, I think that we have examples of how to accomplish this, you know, sort of um, standards-based practice uh, out there, but it may not come from the community we're familiar with, right? Right. Um, so as a machine learning um, practitioner or a data scientist, you're, you're probably a lot more familiar with the software engineering community. And you're probably a lot more familiar with people who are publishing um, standards by way of, you know, GitHub or standards by way, um, you know, of, of library. Um, but we may not have um, access to or may not have thought about um, you know, applications for, for um, handling messaging or handling workflows, um, you know, even a lower layer of the stack in, the mm-hmm. compu- in computing. And I think um, it's going to be this interface of communities that are, that are happening that helps us to build out these, um, these standards and practices that make sense um, because we are not talking about one community. We're actually talking, we just talked in this conversation about multiple different right. <laughs> um, architectures converging. So I think we need to expand our, our view a little bit and start to look for places and people that have experiences, um, you know, potentially in a different part of the stack that can help us be successful where we are here in the real time and online uh, ML conversation. You know, you talked about um, Spark as being core to this streaming environment. Is there a, an analogous environment or platform on the Python side that's gained any traction? Yeah, not that I'm aware of. Um, and, and I think largely um, that's happening because uh, of the way that Python tends to interact with data in general. Um, I think data scientists, as data scientists, we've tended, and this might just be a community issue, we, we've tended to use it um, on the you know the research and dev side. Mm-hmm. Um, and so interacting with data, you know, at the more abstracted, I mean, the less abstracted layer really uh, at that point has, has not been something I th- I've seen a lot of research poured into, um, but I could be wrong about that. So, you know, I think I haven't seen it, but you know, that's not to say it doesn't exist. Right. So you, uh, you, you mentioned the term AI ops, mm-hmm. or you may have said ML ops uh, a couple of times. I've, I've, uh, done some writing about that term, but, uh, as applied to AI-enabled IT operations, sure. so like managing the data center with uh, AI, sure. are you starting to see or are you starting to evangelize the use of that term to specifically refer to ops as it relates to AI, meaning managing the AI infrastructure of an organization? 
Yeah, so I think that's that's where I I would hope it would go. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, who knows what what these terminologies are going to end up? But <laughs> I mean, we're talking about AI when when you know ten years ago we've been talking about you know applied statistics. So um, it could go anywhere. But but I, I do think that that's a, a really powerful way to use that term um, because I think in a lot of ways I actually saw a tweet the other day that was really really great. Um, you know, that was talking about you know asking you know software engineers and. Um, IT people to deploy models being just like, you know, trying to um, have uh, SeaWorld take care of your giraffes just because they they take care of other large-scale mammals, right? Like, <laughs> it's really a completely different set of skills, yeah. right? Um, and so when we think about software engineering, we have, a comp- we have a term or knowledge, we have a framework, we actually have tools, an entire category of software that's, that's devoted to taking care of the operations necessary to manage the software infrastructure that runs a company, right? Mm-hmm. We, it's very, it's a huge business and it's actually really important. Um, but from an AI perspective, historically, and I've experienced this personally, you're usually either asked to do it yourself or you're, um, you're translating or giving, you know, your baby, so to speak, to IT or an engineering organization and telling them to scale that. And what almost universally happens is they have no idea why you made those decisions. Um, they disagree with them, sometimes for really good reason, um, about the way that you approach it from a software engineering perspective. And so they re-engineer the whole thing and miss a lot of the core components of what you were trying to accomplish. In the can you give place. a specific example of that? Yeah. So I, I can tell you that I, one of the first models that I actually um, developed myself uh, in industry, um, you know, was written in, uh, was written in R. Uh, I think like a lot of us were doing it. It was a simple logistic regression um, return to binary result. Uh, and uh, I felt like it was is quite generalizable for the problems that we're looking at. Uh, so I delivered it to my IT organization to be uh, applied back into one of the products that was actually already online for one of our internal tools. And they rewrote the entire thing in mm-hmm. Java. Um, and so the challenge with that was, um, you know, Java has a lot of, um, it's very verbose. <laughs> right. Uh, and so the, the um, performance that I had uh, sort of, expected out of my my small lightweight you know you know seven line python code now had a whole bunch of other dependencies that i'd never planned for and so the application um the you know the ai application so to speak that you know returned um you know sub-second or or you know very close to a second um, results for the data set size i was looking at now took you know five to ten minutes to run usually we think of going from you know r python to java as a step forward in performance right right? (laughs) totally if if only that's all you're doing but in the context of it being run in a much more robust application which had a not quite a few other dependencies that i never cared about um you know that that isn't necessarily the case and so you know i think if we'd had a, a a much more robust ai workflow in place um i would be deploying my uh my model, so to speak, you know, um, and the workflow or even the, the AI toolkit itself would decide the best way to implement that uh, mm-hmm. or to return that rather than, you know, the IT uh, organization and myself having to have the negotiation for every single product that we develop, right? Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, you see that all the time when someone checks in code, um, you know, to, a, you know, to a, a DevOps workflow. Um, they have no idea how it may be integrated at the end. It doesn't matter. It's that the core component of what the app, the application that they developed um, gets integrated into right. the overall. And so we, we just got to get there from, yeah. the, from an AI perspective. And I think we're starting to make a lot of progress on that. Years ago, maybe five years ago, let's say, um, 
you know, we would talk about data scientists as this unicorn that, yeah. you know, did everything, right? right. And um, now more often than not, we're starting to see, um, you know, specifically in, in internet companies, right? You've got this very well-defined role now of machine learning engineer right. that uh, works, you know, tends to work hand in hand with data scientists. Sure. People are even changing, you know, data scientists is becoming a bit passe and right. now there's like applied research scientists sure. and these other roles, but right. they're, it's much more of a teaming Great. kind yeah. of um, relationship between these two. And the ML engineer then inherits, you know, because they are an engineer, they kind of inherit mm -hmm. everything that's been developed, you know, in terms of DevOps, DevOps yeah. processes. Yeah. And it seems to be that, a lot of that is is much smoother, you know, for organizations that kind of have that worked out. Sure. Now, this tends to be internet companies, not enterprises. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done, I think, to kind of translate these I think practices. That's right. But we're getting there, and I and I, I think you're right about that. This is a good story. I'm, I'm not here yeah. to, 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 to sell you know, doom and gloom. I think we're we're absolutely getting there. I would expand your list to data first companies, companies that mm -hmm. like use. Um, you know, information that they either generate or derive from their customers um, as the main product that they that then, you know, um, present back to their That's customers. That's a great distinction, yeah. Um, and so, you know, there are many that are in that category, but the ride-sharing, um, you know, companies, um, you know, any anyone that's doing uh, consumer pricing, um, you know, like hotel companies, um, come to mind as the ones that are they're really innovating in this area. It's a little slower um, for utility companies, it's a little slower for telecoms, and it's a little bit slower, um, you know, for governments. And I think these are some of the organizations which actually have the data scale that we really want to interact with. Mm. Um, and I, I haven't seen as much of that there, but we're on the way. And, right. and to your point, if we can get the tooling, um, you know, ready or, or closer to being, um, you know, being mature as we build those roles uh, in those organizations, I think that's a really good marriage. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Justin, yeah. thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. Uh, it's been great to to meet you. Uh, welcome to CFFL. Yeah. You're like 90 days this in. Is, this is day 90. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, enjoy the rest of the conference and uh, thank you. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. For more information on Justin or any of the topics we covered in this show, visit twimlai.com slash talk slash 185. For more information on the entire Strata Data series, visit twimlai.com slash strata ny 2018. Once again, a big thanks to our sponsors, Cloudera and Capital One for their sponsorship of this series. As always, thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.